You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas. And joining us, as always, from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, how you doing this week? I'm all right. How you doing? I'm doing good, man. Thanks for asking. What are you going to do with your free Saturday this weekend? Because this is the first time in a long time that we approach a co-main event podcast where we don't have to sandwich in event coverage from last weekend's UFC and preview whatever is going on at next weekend's UFC. I know. Uh, you know what? Here's where I point out how awesome it is to work at MMA Junkie, where we're all feeling the crush of the constant stream of UFC events, especially this summer. And since we got a rare, rare weekend without one, our boss, Dan Stupp, went ahead and gave everybody on staff an extra day off this week. Wow. And suggested we spend it drinking beer. Wow, okay. He's out on his boat, I noticed, from social media today. Just playboy Dan Stupp. Trolling around the lake, leaving a trail of empty cans floating in the, in the water, I assume. Asking ladies who pass by if they would mind rubbing some suntan lotion in on his back. It was hard to get to areas. Hashtag lake life, by the way. Those ladies out there, frequent. He lives in Tennessee, right? Frequent right. Tennessee lakes in the middle of Tennessee. They yeah, sound nice. I'm sure it's the Havasu of the East. Ben, we got three rounds as usual this week in the Co-Main Event Podcast. In round number one, considering the UFC's claim that Glover Tashira took champion John Jones quote to the limit during their fight at UFC 172, I can't wait to hear six months from now what they say he did to Oven Saint Prue. Murdered him in cold blood, probably. Sounds and in round right. number two, well, the Teamsters are coming, maybe. So now, the question is, how long before Vanderlei Silva winds up buried in the end zone at Giant Stadium? And in round number three, wasn't it like a week ago that we were talking about Ronda Rousey cleaning out the women's bantamweight division? Here we are, stacking fights three or four deep for her now. Just don't tell Dana White, because he doesn't seem to know. Huh. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? Plus, Sir Nigel Longstock's here. We're going to play a little Master Tweet Theater. But right now, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Matt Webb. And he writes, have you gentlemen, oh, that's nice. Yeah. Yeah. Read the interview of Jose Aldo on SB Nation. Uh, where Dana White says, quote, Aldo should be wearing pads for protection during training. Jose Aldo's response is, quote, God is my protection. So, boys, is he fucking with us? Does the Brazilian MMA community seem to be living in the dark ages still? What's really going on? Discuss with the three, four Zs. Well, first of all, I think that we cannot rule out the possibility that Jose Aldo is fucking with us. Especially... Recently, he seems like he's kind of flipped a switch. Oh, he's out of the booth. Yeah. Whatever that means. He <laughs> is. You, he's got, it, that phrase he's right got it turned up to 11. Did you just invent the phrase, he's out of the booth? It's possible. Well, okay. I think that that's probably going to crop up again. Uh, I like it. 
I oh, like the new I, Jose Aldo. I like it too. In fact, I wrote a thing about it on Bleacher Report a couple of weeks ago after he did that first crazy press conference in Brazil, where he the one where he said he was going to ignore the IV ban and basically dared them to catch him doing it. Are they ninjas? They're fucking stupid. That's right. I believe the quote from that one. How are they going to tell IV from my urine, bro? They can't. Brother, actually. I think he said. He actually <laughs> went full brother on that one. Yeah. Uh, but, I so, mean, it seems like he is... The Mr. Nice Guy Jose is done, and he will put your ass on blast now and just say weird stuff. But see, this is the kind of weird stuff that he might have said before, so it's it's right on that line where you can't tell if this is the new Jose Aldo fucking with us or if this is just Jose Aldo maybe having a little bit too literal an interpretation of what God's protection might mean. Especially because... God didn't protect you from the last time you got your ribs all broke that, up, right? That's a solid point. I wonder if there was a follow-up question in the SB Nation interview to ask him, where was God at this this last time when you got spin kicked in the ribs? When there was only one set of footprints, Chad, that's when God was busy jumping up in the air so he could spin kick your ass uh, in the ribs. Here's where we're going to bring up the culture of mixed martial arts, right? And <laughs> okay. how maybe it could be its own worst enemy because... It sounds stupid for Jose Aldo to say that God is his protection, and and I don't know if it would be stupid or not for him to refuse to wear pads while he's out there uh, uh, training, although I think that would get us into a conversation of what pads he ought to be wearing, and perhaps Reebok will engineer some of those for the fighters. Oh, yeah, that's really what Reebok's going to do. But culturally, how difficult do you think it would be to be the first dude walking into the gym where Jose Aldo trains and be like, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and wear pads today. I mean, it seems like you might catch some peer pressure, some well, flack I mean, from it, your brethren. There, people. I've been in enough gyms and seen people wearing a variety of pads while they spar. I don't know if I've ever seen anybody, even if they're fairly close to a fight, sparring with like a big body protector on. I just You just don't see people doing that to prepare for mixed martial arts fights. Plus... I mean, it's really easy. I think Dana White is really guilty of this a lot of times, where when somebody gets hurt and ruins a fight where he was planning to make a whole bunch of money on, then he knows exactly what they should have done. But man, you're you're not the one responsible for getting that guy ready to fight. The same way he will second-guess Greg Jackson or somebody who has more experience than pretty much anyone alive when it comes to training mixed martial arts fighters. And if something goes wrong, Dana White knows exactly what Greg Jackson should have been doing. And it's like, dude, you're not in there in the gym doing that. You don't actually know what you're talking about here. You're just coming up with a fix after the fact, which anybody can do. Ain't nobody out there wearing like body shields uh, while they're getting kicked just to protect their ribs. He has to prepare for those kind of crazy kicks if he's going to get ready to fight Conor McGregor. It seems like reasonable that that might have happened. Right, I agree with you. I, I all of the second guessing of that happened at the time when Jose Aldo pulled out, where they talked about how they didn't know what he was doing, even receiving those kind of kicks, seemed pretty pretty obvious to me. He was about to go out and defend the UFC featherweight title against a guy who has a diverse arsenal of kicks in his uh, his quiver of MMA techniques. So, uh, yeah, I think that those spin kicks probably belonged. And again, uh, and I, maybe I will just reveal my ignorance here, but. Like I'm, I'm familiar with like the the ginormous pads that like a dude like that like your coach wears, right? Yes. While he's holding mitts for you and like, uh, you, you're throwing some body shots in there. To my knowledge, I'm not sure that there exists like a a Nike Pro Combat style light, like usable 
pad system for the combat sports, right? I've seen people wear them in like various like striking art, like taekwondo tournament kind of stuff. Where okay. They'll sometimes wear stuff like that. But even then, it is pretty bulky, and the dude has to get ready to be hitting the body with some of that stuff. That's true. When you do the first time you take the pads off, that's probably a shock to the system. I mean, it can Conor understand. McGregor hits you in the floating ribs. So yeah. It's not like you're wearing that body protector anymore. You know, you want to wear headgear, especially to limit the possibility of cuts, that kind of stuff. Uh, and if you tell me that, hey, maybe they're sparring too hard down there at Nova Union, or maybe they're relying too much on sparring, I would not have a hard time believing that. I'm sure there's a lot of gyms who who maybe spar too much or too hard. And I think a lot of them do it because they feel like, you know, it's scary to go in there to a fight with a dude who is a really good fighter. And you want to feel as prepared as possible. And the way you get there is through a lot of rounds. And maybe, especially dudes who are super experienced at this point, like Jose Aldo, could stand to back off some of that stuff a little bit. At the same time, I don't think you want to be out there proposing all these solutions that, like, after somebody's hurt, that you are going to put out there as if it's just like it should have been obvious when nobody, in fact, does that. Guy should have been wearing his split-toe sandals. He could have been in there working on his powers of invisibility. Throw a little smoke bomb down. His ninjutsu, just practicing taking rubber knives out of other other people's hands. When the smoke clears, you find that Jose Aldo is out of the booth. (laughs) Uh, I think, But we are both in agreement, right, that the new out-of-the-booth Jose Aldo is awesome? Yes. Okay, he should have done this years ago. Maybe he just needed to be pushed too far. Maybe he just needed the proper interpreter, for all we know. <laughs> uh, next question this week comes to us from Michael Morgan. He writes, remember that tall, lanky 205-er with the African cat? I miss that guy, Jones. Jones is far from perfect, but uh, I miss watching that man fight. Do you think he ever comes back with Ronda and Connor doing so well? The UFC Does the UFC need Jones anymore? You can hype up DC versus Gus all you want, but we all know who's the best 205-pounder in the world. Uh I think we should give a nod here to the fact that things are looking up a little bit business-wise for the UFC. You yes. know, put the uh, the prospect of unionization, the the uh, uh, the prospect of oversaturation, the prospect of these class action lawsuits to the side for a moment, even though obviously those are huge issues. Uh, just in terms of buy rate and ratings. Things are as good right now for the UFC as they have been in several years. Yes. With Conor McGregor and Ronda Rousey appearing to come into their own as people who can drive pay-per-view sales, you know, specifically, since that's the most important thing. Uh, but to answer the question, does the UFC still need John Jones? Yes. Answer, yes. Short yeah. answer, yes. Well, and I agree that it feels like the sport kind of needs him in the way that not only is he the best two of fiver in the world, he's probably just the best fighter in the world. Yeah. And I think that, yeah, we all want to see that guy come back, but we want to see that guy come back in proper working order physically and mentally. We don't want to see that guy rushed back before he's ready. And if anything, I'm encouraged by how little we hear from John Jones these days. That gives me hope that he's, taking care of some stuff, doing a little little introspection, getting his mind right. I would be worried if it was one of those things where after this, like the same thing after that cocaine test, where he came back and said, I'm going to the rehab for you know one night, and then was back on Instagram posting mocking messages of people. Like th- That would make me think, wait a minute, he's not learning anything from these experiences. This one, the fact that he seems to have kind of faded away for a little while, gives me at least some hope 
that while we're not seeing him, he's busy taking care of business. Yeah, the only things we've seen from him have been a couple of what seem to be efforts to rehabilitate his image a little bit. We got the story that came out about how they made him scrub the mats his first day back at, at uh, Jackson's gym, which seems like, uh, you know, a good and nice thing to do to kind of let him know that he's that he's not the the top or he's not above the law basically that he's just another one of the people in the gym and also that story smacks of just a complete plant uh for trying to make it seem like this guy's rehabilitating his image he's also retained as far as i can tell just from looking on twitter uh a new public relations company that like retweeted some stuff of him maybe at a boys and girls club or after school program something like that uh where he's like meeting with kids and playing with kids and stuff like that uh which is good uh but then you look at like the uh the bio of the the woman who runs this PR firm and she re- refers to herself as like an expert in crisis management at which point I'm like I feel like that just undoes all the PR that you just did where you're like, Hey, look at all this great stuff. This guy's doing. Also, I'm a, I right now I'm involved in crisis management. Well, first of all, would you disagree that what he needed was some crisis management? No, he absolutely needed crisis management. Are you saying that? The I'm just PR saying maybe, person, yeah, maybe she don't should be, not identify yeah, herself maybe don't be that upfront about what it is that you do. But then how does she let people in crisis know that she's the one they should hire? That's a good question. Maybe the people in crisis will find you if they need a serious crisis managed. In in like a, what was that Clooney movie where he played the dude who Michael uh, Clayton? Yeah, in a Michael it's Clayton a movie. kind of way. They 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 will find you. Okay, that's actually not a bad idea. And I also think that we should start a PR firm uh, specializing in crisis. Oh, management. our crisis management would be top notch. <laughs> well, the thing that uh, back to the question. You know, you miss this guy fight. Do you think he comes back? I do think he comes back. I think that it's not outlandish to think he could still come back by the end of the year. Uh, but I also agree that it's – I don't want to have the whole thing where we do the thing where we just kind of try to move on and forget that he exists and act like uh, Daniel Cormier is just the unquestioned champion. Right. Which I feel like – the UFC is at times in danger of doing. Not only that, but like a bunch of people who run uh, independent fighter rankings took John Jones off their light heavyweight rankings, like immediately as soon as he got suspended, which I always thought was kind of funny. Like if I ran my own independent rankings, which I know we don't like to talk about that much on this show, like I would probably keep John Jones. I, I would probably have a rule where it's like, if you don't fight for a year, then you will remove you for an activity. But like, I'm not sure I would yank a guy from my rankings just because he got suspended by the UFC. Yeah. It's always weird. We've had that internal discussion at MMA, MMA Junkie before about how to do the rankings because, yeah, you can come up with a rule and say if this guy doesn't fight for so long. But then what do you do with a guy who, like George St. Pierre, who says he's stepping away? Do you, do you still wait until it's been the full 18 months or whatever your arbitrary deadline is before you take him off? Do, you, do we take everybody at their word when they say that they're not going to fight for a little while or they're retiring? Um, I don't know. But I don't know if you caught during the weigh-in show, at the end of the weigh-in show this past uh, Friday, uh, and, you know, Glover Teixeira and OSP are weighing in at, for the light heavyweight fight. And then I believe it's Daniel Cormier who makes the kind of just – passing remark at, at the end of the weigh-in show how fresh the division seems with Jones out of the picture. <laughs> like, Come on, man. Oh, that's, that's pretty good. It, that's expert trolling, right? That there. is expert trolling, but I also feel like I want Daniel Cormier to be a little above that. 
even when it comes to his nemesis, John Jones, and stuff like that. And when you see like this banter back and forth between Daniel Cormier and Rashad Evans about how they may fight, and they're both sitting at the desk as analysts, stuff like that every once in a while highlights to me the problems of having still active fighters as your analysts on Fox Sports, especially because they're on there, you know, clearly biased in favor of their teammates, that kind of stuff, uh, talking about uh, possible potential future opponents. It just creates a situation where they're not doing the traditional sports analyst thing anymore. They're doing it with their own still active careers in mind. Right. Well, if you get former fighters on there, man, they could say anything. <laughs> Those guys could be honest at, at a time or two. Uh, just, just to circle back to the question, I think we're in agreement. John Jones eventually comes back. Uh, it seems like his personal problems, at least to me, uh, appear indicative of a certain kind of personality. Yes. And I would say that kind of personality uh, probably will not be able to walk away from fighting other people in a cage. I, But I do hope, I agree with you, I hope that he comes back at his best because I really want to see what the John Jones, who's not doing cocaine a month out from the Daniel Cormier fight, looks like. I want to see that dude. Sleepy? Yeah, maybe so. Maybe just slower. Reaction yeah. time slowed. Uh, speaking of whether or not we buy it, when guys walk away, if they're going to stay away from for good, this question from James Guildford, he writes, what is Fedor thinking? Hmm. A short and succinct question, but the reason that we included it on the co-main event podcast this week is just because of the wording, because uh, the answer is nobody knows and no one will ever know what Fedor is thinking. If you told me that inside Fedor's mind there was a complex risk benefit analysis of his comeback and everything going on i might believe that if you told me that inside fedor's head he was just imagining a, a bear riding a bicycle while he <laughs> giggled in delight i would also believe that he's inscrutable chad you don't know what's going on inside that man's mind he's a a, a fascinating character just because of the time that he has been around in the sport and the position that he's been afforded in this subculture as like a demigod, as a guy who, you know, gets lionized on every message board in, in the sport. And yet we have almost no idea who he is as an actual person. Um, and that to me is one of the things that's most interesting about him. And the thing about Fedor, inscrutable, as you said, you could ask him to his face, what are you thinking? Why are you coming back? And by the time your question got translated from English into Russian, and then his answer got translated from Russian into English and came back to you through a translator slash perhaps a girlfriend, uh, you would be lucky if the answer that you got back even addressed that question. Yes. And that is one of the things that makes Fedor so unknowable. Um, but I mean, we can guess, right, that he probably misses the action that that maybe he has similar personality traits to what would lead you to believe that John Jones isn't going to walk away. Uh, and, you know, when I talked to Fedor before he did the Dave and Buster's appearance at uh, at that place in Connecticut for Bellator, uh, he seemed happy to me to not have the grind, but he was also, he said he's, he was continued to train in MMA every day. And I think from other people who have retired that we hear from, it sounds like, that's kind of like being an alcoholic, but continuing to work in a bar. Yeah. That eventually you feel like you can have one more drink, et cetera, yeah, et cetera. You have a couple good days in training and you think, I could still do it. I still got a, got a few fights left in me. From a, from a strategic standpoint, right? Now that we've had this sort of like simmering rumor in the background for a few days now that, that Fedor is actually negotiating with the UFC. Whereas I think when this news first broke, 
uh, it was widely assumed that he would obviously just land in Bellator because of his previous relationship with Scott Coker and Strikeforce and all that. Now that we know that he's that he may in fact be negotiating with the UFC, uh, is it good strategy for? Is this the good the right time for Fedor to return to kind of be like because Fabricio Verdum is the UFC heavyweight champion? Because if there's anything at all that could improve on Fedor's legacy, which would be hard to improve on, frankly, like he has a slim a slim chance of improving on his the legacy he has already established. And Wait, you're uh, saying hard to improve on because you don't think he is capable of much right now, not because well, you think not his only that, is so but incredible. like what could he do to improve on that legacy besides win the UFC heavyweight title? Like, that's the only thing out there that if he did it, you would be like, oh, well, holy shit, that's super impressive. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I was wondering when I heard that talk about a Fabrizio Verdum-Fedor rematch, if that was intended to get us all to say, no, no, he doesn't deserve that. He's Look at where he's coming from right now in his career. It's kind of outlandish to just give him a UFC title fight so that then if they matched him up in something kind of ridiculous – then the you know kind of like raising the expectations so high that then when we said no way they could drop it way down low and just make a Fedor versus some big fat dude he's going to knock out kind of fight and we couldn't say a damn thing. It would be interesting to see how the UFC would handle him because I feel like in the past when people come into the to the octagon who have these established established reputations but for whatever reason maybe have not always been the favorites of the UFC it seems like they get kind of tough fights like uh almost like the UFC wants to make the point see this guy never fought here before uh and he's never really been that good so it would be interesting to see how it would handle Fedor if it would it would give him some fights that it thought he could win or if it would just give him some fights where the company thought he would just get dusted so that it, it could be like, see, this guy was a uh, sham all along. Yeah, and I would guess maybe that's one of the things being, if not outright addressed in these contract negotiations, then at least uh, hinted around. Um, I don't know. I mean, I guess if we come out and it's Fedor versus Soa Pileli, well, we'll, we'll kind of know which side won in those negotiations. You're all right, though, and it's the same kind of thing where you see uh, somebody like Jessica Aguilar come in from... Uh, uh, outside the organization and she gets basically the toughest possible fight that you can get in that division uh, without fighting for the belt immediately. And you wonder how much of that is we want to make, make it look like, or make it clear that the UFC has the best fighters in every division and how much of it is just like, well, Hey, if we had to negotiate for you to get you, uh, you know, give you big time money to get you to come in here, then uh, we want to throw you in there and, and, and find out what we got for our money right away. Well, that's going to do it for Listener Mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you want to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to get a hold of us. You can go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says Email the Podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you might as well sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss, you know, from Tuesday to Friday when we're not recording the podcast. Uh, it's fun. It's easily digestible. It's humorous. It's totally free. Uh, we won't sell your, your email address to, to porn websites unless they offer us a lot of money for it. If you don't like it, if you don't think it's worth your time, you can always just unsubscribe. Ben, uh, Breakfast of Champions subscriptions going through the roof. Is that a right? Just skyrocketing. Yeah? Yeah, Every it seems like every week we get kicked up to a new payment level uh, from the company that handles our uh, 
our mass email. So what our, you're saying newsletter. is we might have to sell people's email addresses to porn companies sooner than we expected. Yeah, any day now. Any day now. See, the thing is, at least though, when we put that disclaimer on it, when people do start getting emails from us wherein uh, they imply that they need to make their penises larger, they will know at least that we got paid. That's right. The only porno emails that you will get for free are the special fan fiction emails that Ben will write and send to you. Yeah. You'll probably receive them like two thirty, three o'clock in the morning on a Saturday. You know, I I could get those done a lot quicker, but I keep running out of synonyms for glistening. <laughs> Good Lord. Uh, so things got graphic here, but that's going to do it for <laughs> listener mail. We're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. That starts right now. One of the co-main event podcast is presented by the National Academy of Sports Medicine. The National Academy of Sports Medicine is looking for people who want an exciting career in the fitness industry where you wake up every day doing something that you love. NASM trainers improve people's lives by helping them reach their health and fitness goals. Don't miss this opportunity to start a career where you get to stay active and change people's lives. It doesn't get any better than that. NASM guarantees that you'll land a job within 60 days of earning your CPT certification or your money back. Ben, it exists on the internet. What's the internet offer? Well, Chad, you can get a 14-day free trial of fun online programs at myusatrainer.com. That's myusatrainer.com. Restrictions apply. See myusatrainer.com for details. Well, Ben, uh, Glover Lucas Tashira went out and choked Ovin St. Prue unconscious in the third round of the main event of UFC Fight Night 73 from Nashville, Tennessee over the past weekend. We talked a little bit about the light heavyweight division during listener mail and just kind of the idea that, as Daniel Cormier would assert, the whole division feels fresh without John Jones. I don't know that fresh is the word that I would use, but at least I think we could make the case that contenders at 205 pounds now uh, enjoy a little bit of new life with a new champion who has not already defeated all of them in a row in impressive fashion. However, you watch Glover Tashira and Ovin St. Preux uh, have this fight last Saturday night. Glover Tashira snapped his two-fight losing streak uh, with the victory, and Ovin St. Preux saw his two-fight win streak come to an end. You watch that fight, I didn't get the impression that those guys either one of them really improved their stock in the division. Did you? You know, one thing that I think, if this proved anything, was Glover Teixeira was pretty adamant both before and after this fight that he was better than he looked in his last fight that lost to Phil Davis. And, yeah, I mean, he lost to John Jones before that as part of the two-fight losing streak you referenced, and he didn't seem like he was really going to make too many excuses for that one because, hey, he was up against John fucking Jones. But it did seem like he wanted to make sure we all understood, hey, that wasn't him. That wasn't the best that he's capable of doing. And something like this, I will give him that. I think that he did maybe give us some credence for that claim. Because everybody always likes to make those kinds of excuses after a fight, right? Say, oh, the weight cut didn't go my way, and therefore, you know, I wasn't at my best on fight night. But then coming out there and uh, taking apart a guy like Ovent St. Preux, 
made me a little more willing to go, okay, okay, Glover Teixeira, maybe you got a bad deal on that Phil Davis fight, and maybe you are better than that. Maybe, you know, we just look at you as the guy who went all the way to the top and took John Jones to the limit, and that's what we say about you right then. I mean, I'm not... There's no reason for me to think that Glover Teixeira, if he fought John Jones again, or if he fought Daniel Cormier for the for the title now, would take it. But uh, I do think he is right up there among the top at light heavyweight. Well, yeah, those losses, I guess, aren't anything to sneeze at. Prior to that, he hadn't he hadn't lost since uh, losing to Ed Herman in 2005. We were at that one. We were there. We were at that. Uh, and then you're right, John Jones, Phil Davis, back to back in 2014 is is uh, you know nothing to hang your head over. And this seemed like one of those fights where. One guy kind of realizes in short order that he's way better than the other guy, at least at doing some things, and then is able to uh, impose his will from there, I guess you would say. Uh, I kind of agree with you, though. I don't think that Glover Tashira looks like the kind of guy who is going to beat uh, Daniel Cormier. He certainly doesn't look like the kind of guy who's going to beat John Jones, a fight that we've that we've seen before. Um, but he's a guy who's who's going to be trouble for a lot of big time names in that division, or at least is going to present present a problem, going to be a challenge for almost anybody in that division. Let's talk a little bit about Ovin Saint Prue, though. Too, um, he comes into this fight uh, again. We talk about the 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 kind of weird matchmaking in the UFC. Sometimes uh, this is essentially booked as a hometown showcase for him. Uh, but also one where he needed a step up of, in competition and they, they sure gave him one. You know, his past two, his two fight win streak that I mentioned at the top of the round was over Shogun Hua and Patrick Cummins. Uh, and so then Glover Shira obviously represents a, a pretty big step up in competition for Ovin St. Peru. He didn't look terrible, but he also looks like a guy who now in his early thirties, uh, is running out of time to cash in on, uh, some early promise and like the idea that that maybe if he hooked up with a good camp and or a, a top camp, not to say that he's not with a good camp, but like a major camp, uh, and and really got some elite level coaching, might have been able to to be a player. I don't know. Looking at his ground game and his wrestling in this fight, I was a little surprised that he hadn't made any more improvements in that area, given the time that he's had to work with. Because it seems like we've gotten past the point where back in the you know a few years ago, you could say, okay, hey. This dude in strike force is kind of a he's was a good athlete, has that Tennessee Volunteers football thing that everybody likes to uh, point to as a promotional tool, and now here he is in this sport, and okay, he's kind of a work in progress, and you could say that, and that was good enough. Now though, you know, you're in there, you like you said, you know, he's got 25 pro fights at this point. Now you can't really get by on that anymore. You can't just be like, hey, he's the guy who's a good athlete, and who knows how good he could become in time. It's starting to seem like we've seen it. Like, how have you not added uh, a little more to your skill set, uh, especially against a guy like Glover Teixeira, who, I don't know, should not have been too terribly surprising that he might want to take you down and, and use some jujitsu on you here. Yeah, um, you're right. He's 32 years of years of age at this point. Um, I mean, you can't Von Flu choke everybody. No, no, you can't. Uh but, I mean, I guess the point that I was trying to make early on, uh, as far as I know, he's still training at the Knoxville Martial Arts Academy. Uh, and it seems like he kind of has the same profile that we've seen numerous people uh, have when they, they don't go on the road to kind of like try to, uh, you know, improve their skill set, become a little bit more diverse, become a little bit more better in what they're in, a little bit more better, I just said. 
a little bit better. Talking into a microphone. At what they're trying to, at what they're, they're capable of doing. It's kind of like, you know, to use the extreme example, Brock Lesnar, who became the UFC heavyweight champion, obviously, but never really, uh, took the initiative to leave his home in Alexandria, Minnesota and, and go to a, a top camp where maybe he could have received, uh, some elite level instruction. Maybe the, the other fighters there would have pushed him. I don't know if that, can be blamed as as the primary reason why Lesnar never closed the holes in his stand-up game. But it always seemed to me like he could have done more. Now I look at somebody like Ovin St. Preux, and obviously this is a, a big thing to ask for a guy to leave his home to go someplace else uh, to, to try to improve at work. But it, it kind of feels like he was a guy who either needed to do that or needs to do that now in order to try to... Uh, you know, uh, make good on some of the the athleticism that he possesses, and and become the kind of guy that you feel like he could be if it didn't seem like he was just really uh, uh, kind of a greenhorn out there. Well, you know, you could say a similar thing, and I saw several people saying it about another person who lost on this fight card, Sarah McMahon, who it seemed like when you know she kind of came in with a, a big head of steam, won her first seven fights, had that uh, Olympic medal that. Uh, made it think like, all right, a, a clash with Ronda Rousey is inevitable. Then she loses that fight against Ronda Rousey. She's lost her last two. She won that split decision over Lauren Murphy in there, but that one could have easily gone the other way. And she could be sitting on a, a four-fight losing streak, and you have a lot of people saying, you know, hey, why don't you just pick up and, and go somewhere else to get your training and go to one of the major camps uh, to get a full camp in. And you can see that. You can see how, hey, that might actually be beneficial. But then at the same time, you know, she's – She's got a daughter. She's got a life at home. It is a lot to ask of some people sometimes, especially when you think about the money you stand to make in MMA at this point, especially if you're not one of the champions. I guess you face a situation where you're wondering, do I take that gamble and say the only thing standing between me and being a champion and making that, you know, go to hell, walk away money is going to train at Greg Jackson's or going to train at, at AKA or ATT or something. If you believe that, then yeah, maybe you, you make that investment in your future. If you're thinking from camp to camp and fight to fight, and you're thinking, well, do I spend $15,000 on this camp to make 20 and 20? Right. Oh, and it certainly would be a thing that I couldn't do, just walk away from my life for months on end. I don't think it could be a thing that you would be able to do. So it is like a big... Are you daring me? I'll do it. I'll walk away from my life right now. Oh, I know. You're going to go out for a pack of smokes and never come back. Oh, you're just waiting for the chance, just waiting for an opportunity. All right, well, let's do uh, Are You Fucking Kidding Me, Ben? And then we will do some Master Tweet Theater with Sir Nigel Longstock. Ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me this week? Well, Chad, uh, I, I'm a little conflicted about this Are You Fucking Kidding Me, but I got to go ahead and I got to give my Are You Fucking Kidding Me to a guy I think could become something, Ray Borg. For one thing, I want to give him an Are You Fucking Kidding Me for not, still not relenting and going with a Star Trek TNG-themed nickname. It's right there, Ray Borg. It's right there. You know how many nerds follow this sport, don't you? They would eat that shit up, man. And at flyweight, come on, you, you need any little edge you can get to get people interested in you. But Ray Borg comes in for the weigh-ins here, weighs in for his 125-pound bout at 126.75 pounds. 0.75 pounds away from it, Chad! You shave your head, you take off your clothes, you're there. He must have been tired, man. He must have been really tired because <laughs> he opted not to do it to miss weight, which you know the USC gets mad at you for. You also have to take some of your money and hand it over there to your opponent. I don't know if you just hate sweating more than you love money, 
But are you fucking kidding me? How are you not going to cut the point seven five, Chad? Are you, are you not gonna fucking cut kidding it? me? Are you kidding me? And see, here's my uh, ignorance again. I thought that the Taz Mexican Devil was a Star Trek The Next Generation related nickname. <laughs> you know, clearly you don't TNG, man. Ben, Michael Johnson got absolutely screwed this past weekend on a judge's decision against Benil Dariush. Uh, I suppose that probably deserves an are you fucking kidding me just in and of itself, since it was one of the worst decisions that I've seen in recent memory, maybe ever. Oh, not ever, but it was bad. One of the worst ever, I would say. Uh, among the worst. Among the worst ever. This week, though, I do want to spend a special are you fucking kidding me out to all of the people who responded by this decision, responded to this decision by basically falling back on the old adage that we're still saying for some reason in 2015, and that is, well, don't leave it in the hands of the judges. Are you fucking kidding me, dude? Saying don't leave it in the hands of the judges is basically like saying, I don't know, man, just score a touchdown on every drive then you won't have to worry about kicking a field goal. You know what you should do at this at bat? Go up there and hit a home run. Yeah, man, just hit a home run. Then you won't have to worry about somebody throwing you out at first base. Won't even have to run fast. Motherfuckers, in 2015, when the best guys in the world exclusively fight the other best guys in the world, some of these fights are just going to go to the judges. That's just how it works. So... Now, when the fights do go to the judges, we need to be sure that the judges can do a competent job scoring the fight. Let's just issue a decree right here, right now. We're never going to say, don't leave it in the hands of the judges ever again. Ever. I agree to this. Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me. I have a feeling that people are going to abide by that. Yeah. We've heard the last. That should be the end of it. I have a feeling we've heard the last of don't leave it in the hands of the judges. Good work here today, Chad. Anyway, Sir Nigel Longstock is here. He's going to lead us in a game of Master Tweet Theater we haven't played in a few weeks, so I know we're excited. That starts right now. It's that time again. We welcome back to the show friend of the podcast and noted theatricalist, Sir Nigel Longstock. Sir Nigel, how are you? Good day to you, sir. I am only mildly nauseated. Hey, how about that? Hooray! My condition has been upgraded from complaining to self-pity. Okay. Well, I feel like we're, we're making progress there. And as long as I can stop pulling over to the side of the road to let you vomit out the car window, then uh, it's all good, right? Well, no promises. I do still want you to pull over periodically. But okay. it won't just be vomit. Okay. All right. Well, I guess I'm going to go ahead and tempt fate by asking, is there a theme to this week's Master Tweet Theater? Yes, sir. There is a theme. The theme is you have got to do what you have got to do. All right. Okay. <clears throat> I don't, why do I even bother with this anymore, Chad? Wait, you put this mic really far away from me. Um, I don't know. Why do you bother? You put your chair far away from the mic is what happened. Well, you got your computer bag here. All right, we don't, we don't... Not to mention these thunder thighs, which are getting in my way. You're practically in my lap now. All right, Sir Nigel, when you're ready. <clears throat> I'll tell you, gentlemen, why I bother with this. It's the money. And Sir Nigel is pleased to announce that I have a new sponsor. What are you doing right now? <clears throat> what is this? You know, I heard about all your sponsors, Draft King and Lube Dude and whatever other strange <laughs> corporations, you know pay money for your podcast, and I thought, why should these dupes get in on all the fun when Sir Nigel gets nothing? Mm. Wait wait a minute. Chad, this is highly unprofessional on Sir Nigel's part. I feel like we're being mocked. 
Also, I mean, I feel like we clearly operate according to the UFC model where we get to have as many goddamn sponsors as we want and you get to have as many goddamn sponsors as we want. Well, I've formed a Sir Nigel's union, and this episode of Master Tweet Theater, starring Sir Nigel Longstock, is brought to you by Value Save Wheelchairs. Value Save, the wheelchair good enough for a child. <laughs> God damn it. <clears throat> is that it? Is that all? You've got to do what you have got to do, sir. Apparently you do. <clears throat> Tweet the first. I just threw a sidekick and a fart at the same time. That's called impeccable technique. Chad, I'm going to say that seems like maybe a Joe Benavidez. That's a good guess. Uh, I am going to go with a guy who has been, I would say, uncomfortably active on Twitter lately, and that is Chris Lieben. Oh, I mean, based on what I know about what's going on in Chris Lieben's life right now, that seems a little too lighthearted for him, but I could be wrong. I think he's making the best of it, man. Okay. All right, Sir Nigel. Hmm. Both fine guesses. Both men active on social media and in their gastrointestinal tracts, and both wrong. It is Josh Barnett. Okay. That Josh. one actually makes sense now. Mm-hmm. In retrospect. Hmm. Tweet the second. I will straight molest every dog that I see. Dot, dot, dot. And that's that falls under you have got to do what you've got to do. Well, when you've got to molest dogs, I imagine it's a compelling impulse. Chad, you got any thoughts here? Well, I mean, there's a lot of dog lovers out there in the mixed martial arts world, especially on social media. Kind of a surprising number, don't you think? Where, where's this going? Well, I mean, there's just a lot of dog tweets out there. If you follow a number of personalities online. Let's not act like this is just your run-of-the-mill dog tweet. Uh, Julie Kedzie. Oh, damn it. That's actually a good one. That does seem like something Julie Kedzie would do. Oh, god damn it. I'll stay with the female fighter theme and say Roxanne Modafferi. Hmm. Both fine guesses, both walking the line between dog-like and dog-love, and both wrong. It is Joe Benavidez. God damn you. Now it's Joe Benavidez. I assume one of his friends got a hold of his phone. See, you're... you're... Your Jodar was just a little off there. Yeah. I got to really hone that in. Man, dogs know when Joe Benavidez is coming. They recognize him immediately. The wagging tails and sometimes the cowering. <laughs> God damn it. <clears throat> Tweet the third. If you eat what you've always eaten, you'll weigh what you've always weighed. Some people just don't understand this. Hmm. It almost feels like a Rich Franklin to me. It's a little more negative than he usually, he usually likes to keep it positive and uplifting. Um, but I'm, screw it. I'm going to say Rich Franklin. Yeah, it's a, it's a good guess. Could that be uh, Mike Dolce? Could be. Nutritionist of the stars? Seems a little simplistic for Mike Dolce, but okay. It is Rich Franklin, ah. just Woo! simplistic enough. Yes. Are we sure that wasn't a quote, like an unattributed is, quote or it something? It is him retweeting another person and then adding that some people just don't understand this. Okay. All right. Now I'm getting a full picture of everything. Also, fitness tip. If you eat what you have always eaten, you will not continue to weigh what you have always weighed. <laughs> Sir Nigel has a birthday coming up and fudge pizza is finally off the menu. <laughs> That's a shame. Mm-hmm. Tweet the fourth. Glover took Bones to the limit by going five rounds like a baseball team, being no hit, takes opposing pitcher to limit by playing all nine innings. What? 
What indeed, sir? Is there any punctuation whatsoever in that tweet? Uh, no, and rounds is spelled R-D-S. So maybe he believes that Glover went five rods, but by context, I believe rounds. I mean, the, the syntax to me says Vanderlei Silva. Wow. Oh, there is punctuation. I'm sorry. Being no hit is, an, is a phrase set off by commas, a subclause. Oh, well, then will. actually, never mind. That cannot possibly be Vanderlei Silva. Right. Judd, do you, do you have anything here? Yeah, um, I actually know this one because I believe he liked it so much that he posted it twice, and that would be the American gangster, Jail Sonnen. Oh, okay. It is, it is Jail Sonnen with the tweet so nice you post it twice and read it at least three times for comprehension. <laughs> well, okay. Maybe Sir Nigel's reading seemed very Vanderlei Silva-esque. It's true that Sir Nigel has taken many blows to the head. Tweet the fifth. Hey, Vegas semi-pro wrestlers, all you got to do is Push RT, one hand washes the other, I'm over like Rover. BTW, stop being pussies and take some bumps. I'm going to say that's your boy Phil Baroni, the uh, poet Philip Baroni. Yeah, that sounds like Phil Baroni. Uh, He's trying to get into some wrestling shit now. Yeah, he? he is. I'm going to guess Tom Lawler just, just to give us some variety. Okay. It is Phil Baroni. The poet's words ring down through the ages and urge us to stop being pussies. Take some bumps, man. Is that a, is that a Twitter term to take a bump? Pro wrestling. It's a pro oh, wrestling term. Okay. And it, it does mean to do cocaine off of your house key, right? That too. And anybody's guess which one Phil Baroni was thinking about there. I cannot imagine that take some bumps would exist in a non-cocaine context for I'm pro wrestling. I'm sure you cannot imagine that. <laughs> well... Mind. I guess that's it for Master Street Theater. What do you got going on, Sir Nigel? You know, it's funny you should ask, sir. I've just finished work on an exciting new project about a secret agent who must fight an international conspiracy and evade his own government, all while trying to secure his holiday bonus. I see him. What's it called? It's called Mission Impossible Rogue National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Well, that one's a real stretch. What role do you play? I play the sophisticated neighbor everyone likes. <laughs> well, that was Master Tweet Theater, and that was Sir Nigel Longstock. Thank you, sir. Chad, the Teamsters are coming. The Teamsters are coming. Uh-oh. Maybe. Gonna, gonna wear those brown UPS outfits? Sure. They'd be wearing those when they show up? I don't know what you're talking about, but okay. UPS guys are Teamsters, man. Are they? Yeah. All right. Can't come in the house. What? Union regs, man. Can't come in the house. <laughs> All right. I, this already got weird. But as you may have heard, and we wrote about it a little bit in the Breakfast of Champions, the Teamsters Local 986 and the Unite Here Culinary Union, uh, also known as the people keeping the UFC out of New York, according to UFC executives, uh, they have said that they are going to spearhead kind of an effort to unionize and organize UFC fighters. They've got a website and everything. Damn. Yeah. We got a website. Not to be confused with the other website that the Culinary Union put up. Uh, to basically make the case that the UFC is unfit for children and civilized people. 
Uh, now they want to help out the fighters. And it's a tough one to know exactly what to make of this, because on one hand, these people seem like they know what the hell they're doing when it comes to organizing workers and creating uh, powerful unions that you know, maybe could benefit a lot of fighters. Also seems like kind of maybe they're just doing it as another measure to fuck with the Fertitas, which has been kind of their hobby over the last few years. Now... Where it gets interesting, I think, is the UFC's emailed response to fighters. Do we want to talk about that? Yeah, we do. I think we want to talk about that. Let's let's just talk about uh, the organizations, I guess, first. I think you're right to say, or at least to suggest, that uh, this is going to make for some strange bedfellows if it does, in fact, go down, which is another thing that remains to be seen in, in a large fashion, whether or not this is just more talk or if anything will actually occur on the ground. Uh, but I also think if you're waiting for angels to swoop down out of the sky and unionize MMA fighters, you're going to be waiting the rest of your life. So union angels? You unionized angels. They can't get off the truck, man. They got to <laughs> stay on the truck. Uh, so even though I think that it's proper to question the uh, motives of the culinary union, I don't know if you can make the same allegation to the Teamsters, but certainly the culinary union has a longstanding beef with the Fertitas, and so it's probably right to question their motives, but at the same time, these are two very powerful unions, and if I was a UFC fighter, I might even look at the culinary union's success, if that's what you believe it is, at keeping the UFC out of New York as a selling point. Like, this is a powerful organization, man. The, you, if you believe that this is what's happening, the UFC has been going to, to the mattresses with them for years in New York. And guess who keeps winning? The culinary union. So if you want to have, uh, you know, a strong organization to have your back as a, a fighters association, uh, I don't know that you could get a heck of a lot more powerful than the Teamsters. Well, see, but there is the question, if you want that. And that is the, always the thing that we come back to when it comes to the question of a fighter's union is do the fighters want this and do they want it badly enough to take the risk and do something about it? Because I think that it's one of those things that a lot of us have talked about and we can see the, the potential benefits and the downsides of it, but you just don't hear fighters really talk about it that much or at least you don't hear active fighters who – the ones that you would need to make something like this work – uh, you and I were talking about it earlier off air and we were saying, you know, hey, we always say you need some people at the top, you need some champions willing to – the people who don't need the union basically, the Ronda Rouseys or, or John Jones or Conor McGregor, the, the, the powerful people. You, you either need them on board or you just need a lot of the other people on board. You know, you need two or three champs or 150 other UFC fighters. And the thing is, especially when this started coming up and I've talked to other UFC fighters about it in the past, and I've talked to some of them more recently about it, like, Hey, is this something that you would actually want? And it seems like it's the kind of thing that people want when they're either near the end of their career or they feel like they've kind of been screwed. Uh, but the guys who are in the UFC now and are doing fairly well and are not you know, feeling like they're on the verge of being cut or anything are all kind of saying, I'm thinking about me right now. I need to make that money. I need to capitalize on my opportunities right now. I'm not going to be young and winning fights forever. And they just kind of don't want to risk getting distracted by that stuff. Um, and you can understand why. And that to me always seems like though the biggest drawback to, for, to collectivizing fighters is that they have such an independent mindset. They have to be selfish. They have to think about themselves. They all believe that they're going to be champions. So, hey, if you tell them, isn't it kind of messed up that this sport only rewards the champions? Well, shit, man, I'm going to be champion any day now. 
I'm just waiting my turn. Like, it seems like those are the insurmountable boundaries. One of the things that was interesting to me was reading this interview on Bloody Elbow with the secretary treasurer of the Teamsters local, uh, Chris Griswold. And in it, he claims that he says, hey, we didn't come to UFC fighters saying, how do you guys feel about getting in a union together? They came to us and that's why we're involved is because when people come to us, we want to help them out and help them uh, see what they need to do to form a union. Now, obviously, that might be just the stuff he's going to say, but it makes me wonder if there is a significant push from inside the UFC from current fighters who want this, because that's going to make all the difference. Yeah, that's the million-dollar question, and like you said, it's such an individualized sport, and it's a sport where everyone thinks they're two fights away from from being the champion. If uh, you're a heavyweight, that's true at any time. Yeah, that's true. Uh I think, you know, there's so much stuff now at issue that goes beyond just the just the money you're going to make from winning and or losing fights that you would hope that that a large majority or a large percentage of fighters would realize that and and you know, get in it get, get be interested in unionizing for their own gain if not the gain of of future fighters uh just because with the the Reebok deal coming in and taking away third party sponsors and and the idea that the UFC at least claims to be getting bigger and bigger but I'm not sure that any of that trickles down to increased pay for fighters in fact with the Reebok deal you might even say fighters are making less now than they've ever made before which doesn't really seem to make sense so there's some stuff going on that you know maybe ironically seems like things that the UFC has done to put themselves to make themselves vulnerable to this kind of action but you're right in, in, you know, hitting the nail right on the head and saying that uh, this is going to be a tough task, I think, to get enough UFC fighters to sign on to this just because of the individual nature of the sport and because they're all terrified, man. They're terrified of retribution from their employers, frankly. Well, and see, that is the the thing here. We, we mentioned at the top the UFC sent out an email response uh, from uh, – uh, I believe it was from uh, Kirk Hendricks, the uh, one of the the chief legal officers there of the UFC, and it was some of the wording was a little odd for what you'd expect in a, in a response. I can understand the UFC wanting to email fighters and be like, "Hey, you probably heard some of this talk. Here's our thoughts on it." That kind of thing. Uh, in his email, uh, he refers to the the union tactics as both shameful and pathetic. Which is kind of a weird That's phrasing. That's in the first line, right? <laughs> That's the, the first, first line of the email. <laughs> the first sentence. You know, not really what you'd expect to see from the chief legal officer. Uh, and we're, you know, we make some actual valid points about, hey, remember, these are the same people that have been messing with us. Uh, don't trust them. They're not really looking out for your interests. This is just a continued uh, battlefront between them and the Fertitas. I can see all those points. Then down there in the third paragraph is that's when he says, oh, by the way, uh, as a matter of law, unions can only organize employees. And as we all know, MMA athletes are independent contractors, not employees. Whoops. Yeah. That seems like a banana peel moment for this particular email. Yeah. Uh, not where you want to go with that because you just – for one thing, you're like, oh, by the way, you can't fucking do this. Uh, and – for one thing, I don't think this is true. I, it's a, well, the you thing can form a trade association as independent contractors, and I, but I think to the point, like this email just underscored one of the main reasons why you should think about organizing right. if you were a UFC fighter. Yeah, it's like they just wanted to remind you in the email. Oh, by the way, here's one reason you might want a union. 
Uh, and the only thing that the matter of law, I believe, is that independent contractors can form, a, a, like you said, like a trade association. The only thing is if they're independent contractors and not employees, they are not protected from reprisals from their employer under the National Re Labor Relations Act. Not that that would happen. Yeah. See, and that is where you wonder, like, okay, that's what's on everybody's mind, I'm sure, is if you're in any way associated with any of this union talk, you're scared that the UFC is going to come down on you, and the UFC has a reputation for being a little bit uh, into reprisals yeah, just every now a and then. Bit. I mean, I think you, at some point you got to take the flying leap, though, if you're the fighters, and make the gamble that if you get 100 or 150 fighters or even more than that to sign on to some kind of uh, collective action, that the UFC won't be able to fire you by simple virtue of the fact that it has to put on 46 shows a year and it needs bodies to... Uh, to do all that. Now, that's a big if, that's a big leap of faith. And, uh, you know, I would think that if you signed a union card, uh, you would be looking over your shoulder every time you lose a fight and you ought to expect, uh, some scrutiny in terms of maybe when the drug testers are going to be showing up. Yeah. Well, you know, and also, and this is something that it's kind of like hinted at in the, uh, email from the, from Kirk Hendricks that say, Hey, you don't want to be paying union dues, do you? Oh, man, you know, they'll just take your money. Out. And, Using that kind of thing to remind fighters that the the union thing isn't all just a bed of roses necessarily, but I do think the the main benefit. I mean, imagine for one thing, say forty fighters sign on to to say hey, we want to unionize. I think even if even if they're not forty notable fighters, and he, forgetting even that the UFC has this event schedule it has to keep, if the headline UFC fires forty fighters for trying to form a union. That's bad, bad press, man. And at a time when you got a lot of potential bad press between the Reebok deal, you're being sued. I just don't know that the UFC even would risk that kind of action. But I think the big benefit for the fighters is not just the money issue, like not just saying, hey, we want better pay or more the ability to have sponsors or a bigger slice of the Reebok thing. I think what fighters really could, could use out of a union is to be able to just say with one voice to the UFC, like, here's what we think about this. And it won't necessarily, wouldn't all be stuff that we would like to see. Like, for instance, the drug testing stuff. That might get a lot tougher to implement, especially yeah. as fast as the UFC has done it, if you had a fighters association to work with. But then on the flip side, the stuff like the Reebok deal, where the UFC can essentially say to them, oh, hey, by the way, we're changing all your contracts. We uh, we made this we made this deal with this company. We did not consult you about it, but here's how your lives have changed as a result of this decision we made. And if you have a fighters association, at least you get a chance to say, here's what we think about that. Right. At least it would get you at least a seat at the negotiating table for those current kind of important decisions that do end up affecting your life. It's going to be interesting to see what happens. Uh, I still consider it to be a major long shot, but, uh, uh, maybe they'll prove me wrong. I don't know. I'd like to see some, some collective action and, and some forward action by UFC fighters who up to this point have talked a lot, but have not, uh, been able to demonstrate the unity necessary to make any of that happen. Uh, as for right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number three.
Well, Ben, it's maybe it was just last week that we were lamenting the fact that it seemed like Ronda Rousey had all but cleaned out the UFC women's bantamweight division. Here we are a week later, and it suddenly seems like there are two, three, maybe four potential opponents for Ronda Rousey in the offing. That's not going to make the 135-pound division the deepest weight class in the UFC by any stretch, but it also makes it seem like we're not in a crisis situation that would need crisis management, right? Well, depends what kind of crisis management you're into here. But yeah, there are fights you could make if that's what you want to Several fights. We know Ronda Rousey's next fight, we think, will be Misha Tate. Uh, After that, you've got Holly Holm out there. You've got Amanda Nunes, who comes out and gets a big win over Sarah McMahon this past weekend. And the specter of Chris Cyborg Justino reared its head in classic fashion again this week when it seemed like her former co-manager, which is a a title that I particularly enjoy. It's a fun term. Uh, Tito Ortiz goes on Inside MMA. Sounded like he spoke out of turn a little bit there, saying that some UFC people had been in contact with uh, Cyborg Justino's camp. Uh, it sounded like he said that they offered her a fight with Ronda Rousey on December 5th at Cowboy Stadium in, in Dallas. Sounded to me more like if anybody called at all, they were kind of feeling her out to make it, you know, put out some initial feelers there to see if she could make the weight, if that was something they needed to do. Dana White, as is his fashion, came out and called it 100% lies or something like that. Uh, so now we're, we're, we've had the, the Cyborg's actual manager come out and confirm that he had discussions with someone at the UFC. Uh, so I don't know if that's going to happen immediately. Uh, but it seems like it's still a possibility that Ronda Rousey will fight Chris Cyborg Justino uh, and just as a matter of when. So, man, there, I mean, there's a handful of ways you could go with Ronda Rousey, all of which, to me at least, seem better than Betch Cohea in uh, Rio de Janeiro. But see, that's what I was thinking, is it seems like the Betch Cohea fight set kind of a low watermark as far as quality of competition for Ronda Rousey. And ironic, then, that it would be the fight where it seemed like she finally reached out into the the broader mainstream, not even sports world, just kind of American culture, uh, where people who are not even really big sports fans, let alone uh, fight fans, seem to know who Ronda Rousey is at this point after that fight. But it's like, hey, if you made a fight between Ronda Rousey and Amanda Nunes, and you know people would still say Rousey's a heavy favorite and Nunes has no chance to win, but I think they would still say, hey, Better than Betch Cohea. She's got a better chance than Betch Cohea. Well, yeah, man. When you're talking about quality of opponent for Ronda Rousey, you are automatically dealing with a relative situation given that nine of her 12 career fights have ended in under a minute. So as far as I'm concerned, if you've just got a handful of people that could fight her in a reasonable matchup, you are sort of ahead of the game. Uh, and you know, Amanda Nunes now is four and one in the UFC. She lost to Kat Zingano. Uh, last September, but other than that has been successful. Uh, although she's another person where when you look at the quality of her opponents, clearly this Sarah McMahon victory is the biggest one of at least her UFC career for sure. And uh, you mentioned Sarah McMahon during the listener mail segment of this show. Uh, and strength of schedule wise, I'm starting to wonder exactly what we should make of Sarah McMahon because this past weekend it became clear to me that personally, 
for me, Sarah McMahon is that fighter where you have to come to grips with how good you want her to be as a fighter and how good she actually is. Yeah, that's probably true because Sarah McMahon is really likable. When you interview her, she's really smart and thoughtful uh, and has interesting uh, perspectives on the whole fight world. And yeah, you want her to to be really good and to, to be that rival for Ronda Rousey maybe and to face the facts that, hey, maybe that's just not going to happen for Sarah McMahon. I think you you probably got a good point there. But I also think, I wonder if there's a difference when we start talking about opponents for Ronda Rousey, if there's a, a difference between who would be the the best matchup and who would be the most competitive matchup. Because you look at Misha Tate, right? Like, Misha Tate's the only person to get out of the first round against Ronda Rousey. Made it all the way to the third round. You compare it to everybody else, like, she seems like the most competitive opponent Ronda Rousey has had. Uh, and probably maybe the most competitive uh, opponent you could possibly find for her at women's bantamweight. And yet, because they've already fought twice, it seems like people are still not that interested in it. I mean, it seems to me like if you ask me who is going to be more competitive against Ronda Rousey, Misha Tate or, you know, Amanda Nunes or even Holly Holm, I'd probably say Misha Tate. Probably say Misha Tate's the most competitive out of the three of them. And yet, I also still would have to admit that it's one of the the least interesting fights to make right now just because of their history. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. And I realize I'm going outside the bounds of what you were saying here, but the most competitive out of fight, the booth? I'm out of the booth at this point. Uh, the most competitive fight for Ronda Rousey is obviously Cyborg. Obviously, she's not at bantamweight. She's the Invicta women's featherweight champion at 145 pounds. Uh, but really, the only thing standing in between us and that fight is this weight issue and where where they would have the fight on the scale. Um, and to me, at this point, you, you talked about who would make the, the most marketable, the most uh, impressive opponent for Ronda Rousey. I didn't even realize fully, I don't think, in my mind until I saw Chris Cyborg on SportsCenter last week. Uh, number one, that maybe it seemed like the story was getting a little bit bigger and a little bit gaining a little bit more momentum than the UFC would like, perhaps, at this point. And number two... It dawned on me what an enormous fucking deal the mainstream media would make out of Ronda Rousey versus Cyborg Justino. And you know that any fight marketing campaign is basically going to take the easiest, lowest road possible. Yes. And it dawned on me what a Beauty and the Beast style scenario the media and the, the, the fight promoter would probably make out of that fight. And that made me feel like that would probably be a tough road for <laughs> you're not sure for you Cyborg. Want to see that? Well, yeah, a tough road for us to watch, and also probably a lot of indignities heaped on the Brazilian challenger. Yeah, well, I mean, she probably was got used to it during the lead up to the Gina Carano fight. The thing to me is when we start talking about Cyborg making the weight, everybody is so willing to just chop a quarter of a person's body weight off to get them to, to make weight for a fight we want to see when it's somebody else's weight. Shit, man, we, we're really, really willing to believe that you can cut enormous amounts of weight and still have it be safe. And it's weird because this is happening at the same time where there's a lot of internal hand wringing in MMA over drastic, extreme weight cuts. 
uh, and the insanity of that right before, you know, a day before you go out there and participate in a cage fight and get your brain knocked around. And yet when it comes to a fight that we really want to see where weight seems like it might be the only thing that could possibly keep it from happening. Oh shit, man, let's have a, a story where every single nutritionist or dietitian in the world tells us that they could totally get cyborg down to 135 in a couple months. No problem. We're yeah. so, we're just so willing to, to say that, you know, you should do this. Uh, because we want to see something. We don't even think about the actual possible uh, ramifications of doing it. Right. And that's also not where the best, most competitive fight could happen. Uh, I think it would be kind of sad to make Cyborg come all the way down to 135 simply from a competitive standpoint. For the best fight, I think you would want to do it at 140 or 145. Uh, and nobody's saying Ronda has to go up to that weight and stay there. Dear God, she would go up, have a super fight, win or lose, come back down and still be the women's 135 pound champion. If that's what she wanted to do. It just seems like re re depending on where you come at this fight in terms of your own personal biases is how you will approach the weight cut issue, right? Like if you are a Ronda supporter, then by God, She's she's not going anywhere. Cyborg is going to have to come down to 135, and that's just how it is. We've got a champion here, damn it. Uh, and if you are the kind of person that wants to see Ronda get it handed to her for whatever reason, you probably want to see her go up to 145. I say split the difference. Let's have the most competitive fight that we can, maybe at 140. Super yeah. fight. Why not? I, I don't see any reason not to do that. And it is weird how... It, you know, you look at with George St. Pierre and Anderson Silva, how often and how willingly we and even uh, UFC executives would heap a little pressure on them to go up and wait to, to have one of those super fights, to make one of those big, enormous fights happen that never happened. And then when it comes to Ronda Rousey, it's like the UFC can't even fathom the idea of having her go up and wait to to make this fight happen. It seems unbelievable to me, especially with Ronda Rousey facing such a, a huge gap between herself and everybody else at women's bantamweight that we would forever forego making this fight happen. I, I have to believe that it's more of a, a delay tactic that there's still money to be made uh, with Ronda Rousey versus people who have no chance against her. You make that money before you risk her against cyborg. Yeah, I do believe, though, that it will absolutely happen. That's just where I'm at, opinion-wise, right now. And just I, five years too late, the way it always does in MMA? You might even say Mayweather-Pacquiao style. It will be the MMA version super fight that goes down maybe a little bit too late. I don't know. We'll have to see how things shake out from a Cyborg Justino standpoint. And, you know, how long Ronda wants to stick around in this sport. Uh, let's do uh, just saying stuff, Ben, and then we'll get out of here for this week. Well, Chad... My just saying stuff. Uh, I don't know if you saw Brendan Schaub threw a little uh, little shade on the Brazilian fighters, kind of as a whole, uh, saying that since the drug testing has ramped up, Brazilian fighters aren't doing so great. Basically, uh, implying that uh, Brazilian fighters are all juiced up. In fact, at one point, his quote. It even starts with, I'm just saying. If oh, there are okay, so he's familiar with the rules. <laughs> if there are disciplines of MMA for Brazilians, it's Muay Thai, Jiu-Jitsu, steroids, boxing. I'm just saying. It's a second just saying. It's weird. Uh, then the... Now, first of all, my just saying stuff about that would be maybe if you want to be the kind of person where your your job basically is talking into a microphone and being a pundit about MMA... You should stop just saying stuff so much. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Particularly on, when it man. comes to 
a serious doping allegation against like an entire nation of fighters. Uh, but then the response from uh, Andre Pedernares, uh, who starts out very dignified saying to accuse my athletes of doping is at the very least a case of envy due to their accomplishments. Uh, very careful uh, wording. And then we get down there to, towards the end of the statement uh, where he says to Brendan Schaub, we are not to blame for your failure as a fighter and athlete. I ask you to remember your insignificance in the sport. Ouch. When you mention any Brazilian or athlete on my team, wash your mouth oh. as neither the name of my country or of my athletes should be spoken of by people as mediocre as you. I'm just saying shit really ramped up there in a hurry, did it not? That was abrupt. Kind of escalated there. Just saying. Just saying. Maybe we should all stop just saying so much. Wow, I feel like you're trying to end this segment that we do on our own podcast. <laughs> like it seems to me like Ben or uh, uh, Brennan Schaub understands the rules of just saying stuff. Like, if you say just saying, then no one can attack the credibility of what you say after that. Uh, clearly they can. Well, Ben, hearkening back to our discussion from last week about how the UFC just loves to throw a middling heavyweight fight right smack in the middle of a televised main card, seemingly just for the hell of it, I suppose, that we would be remiss if we didn't revisit Jared Rocholt against Timothy Johnson from this past weekend, since that's basically exactly what we were talking about. Uh, Tim Johnson, who has the look and the name of a big-ass dude straight from North Dakota, which of course is exactly what he is. Uh, we also, from time to time, talk about the shallow nature of the heavyweight division. And as an example of that, I just wanted to point out that this past week, that Tim Johnson came into this fight a, without a Wikipedia page, mm -hmm. and B, with a record of 9-1, and one, which sounds pretty good until you learn this, that this fight against Jared Rochalt on the main card of a nationally televised UFC event was just Timothy Johnson's second fight outside of North Dakota, and that his first fight outside of North Dakota was his UFC debut in April. So I'm just saying, somewhere out there, there's a 15-1 welterweight fighting on a regional circuit who just got really, really mad. I'm just saying. <laughs> just saying. Well, that's going to do it for the co-main event podcast this week. We'll be back next week to uh, look ahead to whatever event will be happening two weeks from now. Sure we will. Fight Night 74, I would, I would guess. Take a gander. Anyway, though, for right now, we are done. We are through. We are out. The thing about Tim Johnson's mustache. Yeah. Yes. You grow a I would mustache. describe that as a North Dakota mustache. You grow a mustache like that, you know what you're doing, don't you? You know, you know what, what's up here. I feel like if you grow a mustache like that, you walk outside and there is...